because a lot of homeowners, when they look at solar, they actually type in things like, you know, good looking solar panels, you know, beautiful solar, right? And we do a lot of things like search engine optimization, all of that, and then work with our installer partners to follow up on those leads. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangent, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited to interview Suvi Sharma, who's the founder and director of Solaria. Solaria is a residential solar manufacturer. They're known for their high output solar panels that delivers maximum energy production in a streamlined all black design that complements the home's architectural style with more than 20% more energy per square meter than traditional panels. Their advanced Power XT solar panels pack maximum power into a minimum space for industry-leading efficiency. Suvi is a thought leader in solar and PV innovation and is responsible for leading Solaria strategic initiatives as it extends to the application of its technology. He joined the company in 2003. He's a seasoned entrepreneur with 20 years of experience in company formation, fundraising, talent recruitment, business development, and global operations of innovative companies in renewable energy, information, technology, and private equity. Suvi was a co-founder and board member of Next Tracker until its acquisition by Flex. He began his career at Geo Capital Partners, which is a $500 million international private equity firm, and founded and ran Ivis, an outsourced CRM provider. He talks about a lot of great points in the podcast. Some of them is how Solaria differentiates from other solar manufacturers in the residential market, which is extremely commoditized. And he talks about how the company differentiates itself from the intense competition competition. He talks about innovations that he's seeing in the solar panel manufacturing industry, but in the solar industry in general. And he also provides great advice to entrepreneurs. We start off the interview with me asking Suvi to tell us more about Solaria. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. Solaria is at the heart of it, an innovation company. We're a technology innovator. We've developed new products in the solar industry, namely solar panels, but also tracking systems. We spun out our tracking systems business about six years ago, called it Next Tracker, which is a leader in trackers. And Solaria's core roots are really in solar panels. And what we do today is we supply and sell in the industry really the best solar panel we believe a customer can have on their home on their roof in terms of performance, aesthetics, and quality and reliability. And we sell those to a large number of installers, mostly that are small companies. You know, they can be few people to maybe a few hundred people. And so we support them very actively to help them promote solar to the homeowner, to the consumer, and get the best products they can to put on people's roofs. Definitely. And can you go into more detail about how, for example, the panels, you know, for a homeowner look better or even talk about the capacity as well of the panels or efficiencies? Yeah. So just to start off with, when we developed the solar panel that we sell now, which we call the Solaria Power XT panel, my goal was really to create a solar panel that I wanted to have on my own roof, that I would be proud to have on my roof. That was actually the ethos of it. And so we really took the existing industry materials that we knew were reliable, silicon solar cells, glass, frames, things like that, that have been tried, true and tested, because we want something reliable. It's got to last there for at least 25 years. But then we went for maximizing the power and the aesthetics, all black 
pure black look of the panel so that it looks great. So if we wanted to make solar aspirational, we wanted it to be something people want on their roof, not only because it's the right thing for the planet, but it's also something that makes their home look better and they can be proud to have on the roof. So that was the design ethos that we had. That all being said, so we wanted to go for maximizing power, reliability, the look and feel aesthetics, but it had to be affordable because we want solar to be mass market. We want it to be something that virtually everyone can get on their roof. So you have to make some decisions on maybe not the maximum, maximum performance, but also something that can be affordable. So you put all that into a soup effectively that comes out on the other end of a product, which is our panel. And what we pioneered in the industry was taking solar cells. We actually design our own solar cells. We don't manufacture the solar cells, but they're made to our specification. And then we have those made very tightly to our specs. And then we take those solar cells and we cut them. Solaria pioneered solar cell cutting and we cut them using lasers into strips. So we take one solar cell and cut into five pieces. And then we slightly overlap each of those strips over the other, like shingles on a roof, but inside of a panel. And when we do all that, there's some other secret sauce kind of stuff that we do that I won't bore the audience here with, but we do it in a way that hides all the visible circuitry of the panel. So you don't see any circuits, you don't see any wires, no silver flash thing, anything like that. It's all very integrated, all black, pure monolithic look. And then what that means is the entire surface area of the solar panel is virtually being used to convert sunlight to electricity. Because anytime when you see a panel and you see silver lines on it, grid lines, white lines, any white space, that means that in that area is not collecting the energy. So we wanted to make the maximum use of the space of a panel. The type of efficiencies we get are all our panels are north of 20% efficiency from edge to edge. And the highest ones are 21% efficiency. And in terms of wattage, the core flagship product is 400 watts per panel for a home, pure black. All our panels are all black. We also do have a slightly larger commercial version, which is about 440 watts, but our flagship really is 400 watts for the home. And then we also sell a AC module version where we put a microinverter, in our case, the end-phase microinverter, attach that at the factory. And so it's a plug-and-play panel that goes out very simple to install. It's normally installed by installers, but could even be done by DIY, do-it-yourself. And that's our core business. And we produce that product using a unique proprietary manufacturing process that we develop in terms of the cell cutting, handling, assembly, overlapping into a final product layout and into a panel that we do. And we produce those panels, both some in the U.S. and California from our line, as well as in South Korea, where we have a high volume production line. And can you talk about how the commercial panel is potentially different from your residential panel? Is there any major difference? The only two differences in it are the size. Yes. It's slightly larger. And we do use a thicker glass on that panel because we wanted to make it really robust. Most of the strength of the panel comes from the glass. Okay. And interestingly, we found that that panel, the commercial panel, gets used in residential applications sometimes in high hill areas like Colorado. Yes. uh, People are looking for high impact strength. So we do sell into commercial, but our primary focus is residential, about 80 to 90 percent, depending on the year our product goes into residential and the rest into commercial applications. Yeah, that's interesting. And I know a huge concern that residential customers have is the look of the panel. And I've seen your panels and they're beautiful and all black and you can't see any of the circuitry, which is pretty amazing. I, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of you know, development to come up with that technology. And as you said, like a panel that you would want for your own home. So you really created based on obviously the way the panel looks, capacity and price, you know, the ideal panel for the residential customer. So 
Thank you. Yeah, and Benoit, just on the aesthetics real quick, this might be of interest is what happened was back when we introduced a product about three and a half, four years ago, there wasn't that much focus on aesthetics in the industry in solar. We had been doing some projects and building integrated solar. And I then got experience working with architects for design of buildings, and they were very focused on aesthetics. And what I learned were tricks on things you could do. We did some building integrated panels, and we learned some techniques that we could employ for rooftop panels that would give that aesthetics that architects really liked. That crossover technology and developments that we did and pioneered, that led to the breakthrough in the product that we had because we took such a uncompromising view in aesthetics and the panels that had not been done before, looking at how architects would look at the product. And that's why we get specced into commercial projects, even though we don't heavily market in that area, but we've gotten specced into projects from one to five megawatt size where architects are involved because they want that look and feel in in a new building, in particular a net zero energy building type of structure. Sure, that is really interesting how that happened and that innovation. And it's a way too of like differentiating yourself from, you know, obviously there's a lot of panel manufacturers and to differentiate yourself in the market, which is huge. And, you know, obviously you're kind of the first company to really look into that and look at all three phases because it's not just that piece. So congratulations to you on that. Thank you. And can you talk about how the company was started? And I mean, the year 2000, obviously, there was not a lot of solar. Can you talk about how you became involved and your process and the 20 years of history of the company? Yeah, the original founders, there were three founders of Solaria. They were truly solar mavericks. You know, um, they were doing solar back when, you know, before it became the large industry that it is today. Their names were Paul Dempy-Wolf, Leslie Danziger, and Joel Goldblatt. Uh, Two of the three, one of them passed away, unfortunately, Paul Dempy-Wolf, but the other two I'm in touch with and still close friends with. And two things that attracted me to the company, it was very small when I joined back over 15 years ago. The first was that they believed that silicon was here to stay, as opposed to back then, most of the people working in solar technologies were doing thin films, organic materials, new materials. They really believed silicon was here to stay, but it was too expensive. And so they wanted to figure out a way to use less of that silicon by concentrating light. And that was the first thing. And second is, there were a few other people working on concentrating solar But most of them were these Rube Goldberg-like devices that looked very complex, very tricky, very expensive, needed a lot of precision tracking. They wanted to make something that looked like a panel that leveraged electronics assembly techniques, that printed circuit board, Mm -hmm. doing something entrepreneurial in solar. And I was looking at new materials mostly, thin films, organic materials. I talked to a lot of different technologists, material scientists, but I felt too that silicon was going to be a difficult technology to beat. And much like it has semiconductors and semiconductors, people have tried to replace silicon for decades and hasn't succeeded. Silicon is still the dominant material. I can get into a lot of reasons why that is, but it's really a great material. And so I like the core ideas, but they really needed someone to come in to run the company that understood technology and also that could build a team. And so at that time, the company was in New Mexico and Taos, New Mexico. Beautiful place, not a great place to build a world-class solar company. That was doing what we were doing, which was, you know, the very semiconductor doctor driven. So I moved the company out initially to Berkeley and set up there, you know, really typical startup garage operation, small office space, working on technology prototyping and labs and so on. And then eventually we got venture funding for that product. That product was more of a utility scale solar panel using less silicon, which we don't do anymore. We spun all of our utility solar assets into Nextracker. 
next tracker then went on and became a strong success. And we're now focused at Solaria really on residential and small commercial and some few large commercial applications. So I'm proud of what I accomplished, what the team since I joined accomplished, but really would not have been possible without the original core founding team and real visionaries that were there that put together a initial technology prototypes, funding, angel funding, a lot of angel investors. Because back in those days, venture capital firms were not investors sure. in solar. Yeah, and I can't imagine how challenging it was to raise funding, especially from angels yeah. as well. So that's interesting. Can you talk about too, like how you got interested in solar? I know you were saying that, you know, you were looking to get into a solar technology company. Can you talk about what led you to solar and why you're passionate about the space? I'll give you a long answer and a short answer. The longer answer is I came out of IT and software more. I worked at a private equity firm in that area, but I didn't really find it that fulfilling. I was doing investments and things like that in enterprise software and so on. And, you know, it's important to have software that makes the business process better, but it didn't really get me out of bed and make me feel passionate about what I was doing. And I felt that I wanted to do something that was both business and entrepreneurial, but meaningful for the world at large. Renewable energy just really captured my interest because it was so nascent, so small in size, but the potential was huge. Energy is a massive industry. And it just made sense. You know, when I thought about fossil fuels and the way we get power today, you dig a fossil fuel out of the ground and create an awful mess when you do it. You burn that to create steam, make a huge amount of pollutants into the air that turns a turbine, that turns a magnet, that needs to go through hundreds, sometimes thousands of miles of wires to get to your house to turn the light on when you could just put a panel on your roof and be done. Sure. So aside from the fact that this is the right thing to do, it's just better technology. It's just that simple. And it's going to win because it's better technology. And that's what we're starting to see now is you can subsidize fossil fuels, which is much more subsidized than renewables, but renewables is winning because it's superior technology. That's why we're going to see electric cars take over the roads. It's just superior technology. So I like that and that it was the right thing to do. And then solar, as opposed to wind, at that time, wind was 10x the size of solar. Now solar is about 10x the size of wind. Yes. But at that time, there wasn't much technology innovation that it seemed. There was really more about project finance and it seemed like utilities were and big developers were going to dominate. Whereas solar still a lot of room for innovation, both on the technology side and then on the market side. Because you know, solar, you can have it for in a village house or you can have it on a big utility farm. There's equity there and many different markets. And so it just seemed like it was a great place to, to plant myself and that I felt like it was going to dominate the energy industry. It was going to become the core technology. So that's how I got into it. And then, you know, I mentioned why I like Solaria because it's a very practical approach as opposed to a lot of these moonshot approaches on sure. materials. That's a long answer. The short answer is when I was looking and trying to figure out what I should do next, and I wasn't feeling that fulfilled in working in software and IT. My wife, that time we were engaged, she said to me, you know, why don't you get into solar? Uh, (laughs) And I thought, that's a great idea. So that's probably actually what prompted me in the first place. Yeah. And did you have an interest as a child in getting into solar or... You know, interestingly that you asked that I did, for some reason, you know, when I was young, I thought I'll become probably a doctor or an engineer. You know, you grew up in Indian household. <laughs> Those are the two things that you're told that you should do. Although my parents weren't like that so much. They were very open-minded. But for some reason, I had gotten this thing like, it would be really cool to do a solar company. You know, I don't know where that came from. Maybe I was reading something. And so it did seem like somehow I was coming back full circle into something that I was passionate about when I was younger. That's pretty interesting to have like that sort of interest when you're younger, especially, you know, obviously there was not much solar at that time. And even when you got into the industry, it was still very early in the industry as well. So it's just amazing to kind of see how that happened. 
You know, it was interesting, Sylvia, like you were talking about how you're working with architects and new buildings and how they're very focused on aesthetics. Can you talk about like what products have come from that? I know you mentioned, obviously, you know, the residential product, but did any other like products come out of that, like VIPV or some other sorts of... The short answer is yes. We developed two different products in the building integrated sector. One was a semi-transparent glass window that could convert sunlight into electricity, about half the efficiency of a regular panel, but you could see through it. And it's because we cut solar cells into very narrow strips, spaced them out. And so the way the human eye works is you can see through it like blinds, like, you know, when you have window blinds. We did deploy some installations, but it's a very challenging business because you're really in the construction industry at that point. Yes. It takes a lot of different value drivers and a lot of different groups of people that you have to convince. Ultimately, what we ended up doing with that technology that I described for the time being, we still own all the IP in it. We licensed it to Asahi Glass, which is one of Mm -hmm. the largest glass companies in the world. And they have a product that they are selling and marketing and have deployed, which is a semi-transparent window solar product. And then there was a second product that we did, which is what's called a spandrel product, which is like any building facade, instead of using black glass or concrete, you can have effectively a solar panel. And that product, we have it on the shelf right now. We're not actively selling it because we're very focused and busy right now on the residential sector, rooftop sector that we're doing. But I do see it as a future product for the company that, you know, making solar into a building material, I have a strong passion for doing that. Yeah. And I mean, that's pretty much the way the industry is going to go forward. So that's pretty interesting to hear about those two products. Can you talk about how like the business model has changed because of intense foreign competition for like solar manufacturing and how that's changed your company's business model through the process? We've gone through quite a bit of trials and tribulations competing against, you know, large, well-funded Asian, primarily Chinese manufacturers. Yes. Original business and product was in the utility scale solar arena, which is a solar panel that used less silicon. We got crushed in economics on that because the Chinese manufacturers were able to produce product at very low cost and had the capital to build massive factories to do that. So what we saw in the utility scale solar was, frankly, we didn't see we can be competitive in that market. But we did have a very competitive market-leading position in tracking technology, which is why we decided to continue with that and form Next Tracker. And the reason why that business was able to be successful, even though utility-scale solar is heavily commoditized, is the tracker is a tracker, but there's a lot of customer interface and customization work that needs to be done at the project level. And so, for example, designing the system, what kind of peers and foundations, how far spaced apart, how do you maximize energy yield, all these things. We developed actually an industry-leading customer application team to work with developers and EPCs that was not being done. That actually was one of the core things that allowed us to break through. I'll call it customer intimacy, basically. It was key for us. And the hardware itself was not enough. So that's something I learned, actually, Mm -hmm. in terms of what Solaria is going to do is we can have a lead in terms of hardware and product, but that's not going to be enough. We need to have another element. And that's why I focused on the residential sector, because in residential, solar sector, the product is important, but there's other things that matter. Supporting the installers, making sure they get the product they need. For example, rolled out design and proposal tools. We do sales to help sell into the home. We do lead generation for them and uh, market a lot for them. We work to build our brand. So these are things that are not purely putting a factory somewhere. Uh, It's a lot more around the customer delivery, customer, how do you delight the customer? You know, you have to do the other things like scale up factories, 
batteries and lower costs and all those make product better. But it's those other things that also are equally important that allowed us to build a sustainable competitive advantage in a very, very commoditized competitive environment. Definitely. That's really interesting. And that makes a lot of sense. Can you talk about like how you're able to brand your company? You know, because obviously, as you mentioned, there's a lot of commoditization and building that relationship with the customer, which is first, I guess, the residential EPC installer. Well, most people don't think of solar panels as exciting or sexy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, we do. Yeah. And we very strongly market that way. And I mean, not only market, but actually everything, as I was talking about earlier, everything in the design of the product, we really went for that. Getting a customer excited about a product, right? That's mm-hmm. powerful. I mean, that's, you know, you think Tesla do that, right? With electric cars uh, at a whole different level. Level. Yeah. We've been that with solar panels. And we strongly work on the technology from the efficiency and performance and aesthetics side, but then also we market that. And that's one of the things that we generate a lot of leads because a lot of homeowners, when they look at solar, they actually type in things like, you know, good looking solar panels, you know, beautiful solar, right? And we do a lot of things like search engine optimization, all of that, and then work with our installer partners to follow up on those leads. So that's a key part of our brand. You know, one of our installers says, you know, installing our panels, it's kind of like installing an iPhone on a roof. And that was very much the goal is to create a strong product, but also a strong brand around that product, which is the panel, which is something that had really been, I would say, for the most part, people were sort of like, okay, I'm done with panels, you know, let's go to something else. And that's one of the opportunities I saw was, okay, when people are kind of given up on something, there's an opportunity here to do something different. Yeah, definitely. That's pretty amazing. And do you help with like financing as well? You know, potentially like for the residential customer or even the installer with construction financing? Generally, we don't. There are many good residential loan providers out there. There's about half a dozen that have 90 plus percent of the market. And they have a good business doing that and very efficient business doing that. And mainly what we do is make sure that our product is on their list of products that can be financed, which it is. Oh, that's great. Uh, so virtually, if you go to any of the leading loan providers, LoanPal, Mosaic, Sunlight, sure. Dividend, Solaria is on their approved vendor list. So that's the first and foremost thing. What we are doing now increasingly, as I mentioned about about adding more value for the installers, giving them what they need. We are doing more things like lead generation. We're also right now working on lining up financing through one of these partners or several of these partners. They can get a little better rate by working through our program to lower the cost of financing for the homeowner ultimately. We sell a lot into distribution. That's our core way we sell. And then installers are the ones that we work with. We have about you know 1,000 installers in our program that we work with around the country. Those two, we consider them our partners at the end of the day. The customer is finally the consumer, the homeowner. And our job is to work with all of these different partners to give the homeowner the best experience they can get when they decide to install solar. Definitely. That's really interesting. And it's interesting to hear you talk about design and aesthetics. And by trade, you're not like a scientist. Like, how are you able to take the vision that you have and then make sure that you find the right people to incorporate that vision from a technical perspective? Can you talk a little? Yeah, on the the technology side, I know just enough to be dangerous. So that's, um, you know, I do understand the basics of the technology. I think it's important to do that. To me, a lot of it is finding people that you can trust, finding people that are open-minded, finding people that are collaborative. These are, you know, you hear these buzzwords a lot, but they really are important because one thing about doing early stage companies is, and especially in solar, very little is predictable. You don't even know what policy is going to be in shape in a few months from now. So you have to have people that can work with you through all these changes and maneuverings and things that you have to do. That's important. But 
for me, like whenever I hire people, I never compromise on quality. And what I found is actually quality people are actually not always the ones that get the highest salaries. They may want equity and stock. You know, they want fairness. Yes. They're not looking for like, okay, I just want the highest salary possible and so on. So quality people, you know, both in terms of their capabilities and what they've done. We did hire a lot of people from semiconductor industry. And that gave us a leg up, I think, because we took a lot of that advanced understanding of quality manufacturing processes, engineering into solar. That was a key part of it. But I would say that one thing that I focused a lot of my time on as a CEO, fundraising and hiring people, operations, and all those things. But the one area that I would spend a lot of time on is product, mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, we're a product company, yeah. we're a product innovation company. And nothing matters if we don't have a great product. To me, like people always in the company joke that I was the chief product officer, uh, no matter what. And that was important for me. Like, you know, if we were a service company, like we were just doing a service and I should be the chief service officer, yes. right? I mean, that's something that I always spent more time on than, you know, you would normally think when you look at all the functions of the company. You know, you mentioned the iPhone on the roof, like Steve Jobs. Obviously, he was the CEO and founder, but he spent a lot of time, you know, designing the product and come helping. And you can see it right in the final product. You see that come through the magic that new products can have. That's very important. As a leading authority in the solar industry, life gets very busy. In addition to traveling the world as a speaker and for my entrepreneurial ventures, I'm a son, friend, investor, and entrepreneur. And when it comes to delivering a great sounding show for my listeners, I choose Podcast Laundry. All I have to do is record and send and the rest is done. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, social media graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up your time to do more of what you love like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347-871-8273 that's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273 you know, it was interesting because things in the industry change a lot and i was wondering how like solar tariffs impacted solaria's business Very negatively, actually. We do make some product here, but most of our product we make in South Korea. Mm -hmm. And we have to pay a tariff on that product. And because our product is more expensive, the tariff is a percentage. Sure, of the cost. So we're probably paying the, the highest tariff rate per watt of any company. So it's been very painful. We have approximately another year of them of the tariffs left, unless there's some extension that's put into place. But yeah, it's hurt us in the sense that we ended up having to reduce some of the R&D and other expenditures that we were going to do because we're paying millions of dollars in tariffs each year. It's very critical of a domestic industry, very critical. And solar is a major job creator. But module manufacturing or cell manufacturing is just a sliver of the total ecosystem that exists. And you know this from being on the downstream development side. Those jobs you virtually cannot have overseas. They need to be here. Here And from our standpoint, the more solar that's deployed, the more gigawatts of solar that's deployed, the more jobs are going to be created in the U.S. all around the board. So yeah, it's definitely negatively impacted us quite a bit. I could imagine and hopefully, you know, there won't be an extension of the tariffs after next year and it'll be interesting. Did you increase production in the California line once that happened or pretty much production is like maxed out there? It's already maxed out for what we are set up to do there. Sure. 
Oh, okay, that makes sense. And then you mentioned a lot just changing topics about Next Tracker. What made you roll out the company outside of Solaria? Can you talk about that whole process? Was it outside basically your core business and you thought it was easier to do that at that time? And it's kind of amazing as well to see how the company has grown. You know, basically two things happened. One is we saw a great opportunity for tracking systems with the product we had and the type of business model and customer setup that we had. So we saw a great opportunity and something that could be huge at a time when most people didn't think you could have a billion dollar company selling trackers. (laughs) trackers, That's actually, you know, that's kind of around where they're at. So that was the first thing, a huge opportunity. The second is we saw virtually no synergies with what we were doing left on the panel side because initially when we developed the tracker, it was for our panels so that they went together as a system. But when we stopped doing the utility scale panels and we wanted to focus on residential and commercial, there were no synergies anymore because we were focused on rooftop at Solaria and the trackers are really for ground-mounted projects. So the lack of synergy said, okay, these two companies need to be separate now. And that's what led to the rationale for spinning it out into separate company. And actually the person that I got, you know, initially it's hard. You don't think about separating out. You know, you want to just keep sure. everything together. The person that we got that idea for is Ahmad Shatila, who at the time was the CEO of Sun Edison. And he had watched the company, had invested a bit in the company through Sun Edison and saw this opportunity for Soraya to keep focusing on panels and for the tracker business to take its own wings and instill that idea. And then we and Dan Sugar, who runs Next Tracker, we ran mm-hmm. with it and convinced the investors. That That is pretty interesting to hear that. And that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, it's easy looking at it now after the fact and kind of seeing, you know, what happened. But I'm sure at the time, it wasn't, you know, as easy as a decision to make. Can you also talk about too, like, I know that you were the CEO of the company, and now you've brought in a team. Can you talk about, you know, what you're focusing on now in your new role? And what made you want to kind of reorganize the company that way? Yeah, I needed more time to do podcasts, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> I figured you were probably having so many different roles that you had no time to do anything. You really <laughs> wanted to focus on certain aspects. <laughs> yeah, so it was a process. I would say that, you know, we had, when we had rebirthed the company and spun the tracking business out and then focused on residential market and really took it from concept to a full-on operating company, you know, doing sizable revenue and really Really, the focus now is how to create a very large company in Solaria, like a billion dollar size company. That's really the focus. That takes a level of operational rigor to do that. Yeah. And especially, you know, for our type of business, which is a product production quality sales, you know, even though we're selling a lot of services with it, it's a widget business. And so my personal interest and passion is more in products and innovation and strategy and so on. And so to make a long story short, I decided with the board that I would continue on at Solaria and continue to drive and help drive the overall growth and strategy of the company, but bring in someone that could really build the capabilities in the company to run the company day-to-day to become a very large industry player. And so we did that. I have two really solid, very experienced, very talented executives that I work with closely. Tony Alvarez, who's the CEO, comes out of some in solar, but mostly semiconductors. And you know he's a real nuts and bolts, strong operations executive. And then Howard Wenger, who's our president, who comes from solar industry for really his whole career and has a sun power for a number of years, has a lot of experience in the sector building, demand generation and customer focus. And so I work very closely with them and he's running the downstream of the business sales marketing. 
Those two really drive the core operations and day-to-day of the company. And then I'm working with them really on growth strategies. And so we're, we've got several of those really doing more of this marketing to the consumer that then drives the whole demand for all of our channel. We've started doing that and it's really having a positive impact oh, on both the brand and the demand generation that's going on. So there's some things like that. Some other things that you'll hear from us in the next six months to continue to grow because the industry, even though it's matured, it's still very dynamic, actually. And when it comes to residential solar, you know, now there's storage and people are going to have electric cars, all electric homes. We see an ability to utilize the platform that we have to build on that and really continue to help drive that migration to be, you know, all electric, clean energy homes that people can have. Where do you see the company? I mean, to be a billion dollars in revenue, is that really expanding into different products or staying, you know, kind of in your lane and what you've been doing in the residential space with residential panels? It sounds it's, like you potentially... It's, it's both. We do see we can get there by focusing purely on residential or residential small commercial. You know, sure. Residential being the core, we can build a very large billion dollar type size company just in residential. Market is there. And the core engine of the company is making and selling panels. That's what's going to drive the core engine. But there are some ancillary products and services that we see rolling out in conjunction with our install partners to deliver more value and capture more value and therefore build a bigger business. But the bulk of it is really still going to be driven by our core engine, which is selling panels. But it's more about how we sell those panels and how we market those panels and how we work with the channel that's going to evolve over time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's so interesting to kind of hear your perspective on that. I mean, what trends are you seeing in solar technology? You know, things obviously have been changing dramatically and you've been part of like innovation in your own product. Can you talk about what you see in the future? I'll talk about what I see both on the solar panel front and then beyond the panel. My focus is very much on the residential and small commercial space. But really what I see on the panel side is just a continuous march of improvements. You know, it's not one single thing. And those range from, you know, larger wafers and cells that can lower cost and get more power output to improvements in cell efficiencies. You know, if you look at, for example, monoperc cells, which is really becoming the workhorse of the industry right now, every cell maker, you know, they have a graph of their cell efficiency and it just keeps going up and to the right. Again, it's not it's a double inefficiency over, but it's just each quarter it's growing. And we've seen that. We've seen that in the cells that we're getting. And that's what's allowed us to, you know, when we first launched our residential module, it's a 330 watt product. We're at 400 now. A little bit of that is size, but a lot of it is also improved efficiency on the same surface area. Sure. So we're seeing that relentless march on the panel side. And also we're seeing, you know, more and more R&D going into improvements on cell, whether it be it's called TopCon, which is improvement on PERC to bring up the efficiency by another absolute 1%, which means on a panel level, that could take a 400 watt panel to about 415, 420 watts as an example. And heterojunction technologies, I think mass market, those are a little further away. So these kinds of things are just going to continue to, they're incremental, they're going to continue to improve on the panel side. It's interesting because if you look at a residential application, the solar panel is only 15% of the cost of the system, right? It's all the other (laughs) things. However, if you increase the power efficiency of the panel, the performance of the panel, all those other costs do come down per watt. Mm -hmm. So efficiency is a key driver. But then I think there's a lot of innovations going on beyond the panel. You know, the power electronics, if you look in residential, almost no one uses a pure string inverter anymore. 
you know, it's either microinverters or optimizers, and we're going to see those continue to come down in cost and price over time. And that's going to improve system performance and configurability as well. And then we're seeing a lot of interesting developments on soft cost and soft side. So I mentioned, for example, we roll out our own online design and proposal tool that installers can use on a phone, you can use it on a computer. And with that, you know, you can design the system. It looks really aesthetic the way it is. You have a proposal generated. And then if the homeowner is ready and signs, within 24 hours, our installer through our system gets the permit package. And then they oh, can go to the permit office. And the permit offices are going to go increasingly online, right? And digital. And this starts to really collapse the time frame required, the cost required. So really delivery, logistics, permitting, all that, we see huge opportunity, especially in residential, to bring efficiency and collapse the time and cost that's there. And we're working a lot beyond the panel on really the digitization of that to, to do that, because that's what's going to really fundamentally be the driver for mass market and adoption of solar in, in the home and in small commercial buildings. That's amazing input. And it's just the technology and the innovations with the efficiency. It's just amazing to me and with the prices continuing to go down as well. And as you mentioned, the balance of system costs, like once the efficiencies increase substantially, keep increasing the dollar per watt of the other components continue to decrease, which is a really great point. When you were talking about that, I was also thinking, how has uh, COVID-19 impacted your supply chain? It's interesting. When COVID first hit in China, you know, we do get several of our materials from China and we thought there's going to be massive disruption. Turns out there was virtually no disruption. Mm -hmm. Then COVID hit Korea and we thought, okay, our factory is going to be hugely disrupted. There was almost no disruption. In fact, we never shut down, actually. That's amazing. They contained it really well there, too. A lot of testing and controls. Actually, where it hit us is the market. Installations just came to a crawl in April permit offices started shutting down. So actually, we ended up with not a supply problem. We ended up with a demand problem. Demand problem, yeah. However, that was very short-lived. The market came back stronger than it was before permit offices reopened. And what happened was a lot of the sales and marketing and permitting went online and made the industry a lot more efficient. And now, interestingly, so on the supply side, where we have been impacted is actually on shipping and logistics. There have been massive delays. First of all, the shipping lines went down in number terms of number of routes that were going on. But importation, the economy is not really slowed down. Importation of goods is continuing. Mm -hmm. So the biggest delays we've had is actually just getting product to customers. Logistics has been the single biggest hit on our supply chain. Now that you explain it, that makes sense. I was thinking, you know, that your factory was down for a period of time and you couldn't get... They kept uh, the factories open. Yeah. You contained it. There were no outbreaks or anything like that there. Oh, that's pretty amazing. How are we inventing, reinventing energy infrastructure? You talked a little bit about how, you know, basically residential homes, you know, you'll have a battery, you know, a solar installation, an EV. Can you talk about the energy infrastructure and how it's getting reinvented? It's funny because when I talk to some investors, especially VCs, they're always saying, you know, what's the disruptive technology in solar? You know, what's disruptive yes. in solar? And I tell them solar is disruptive. Yes. You know, uh, solar is highly <laughs> That is so true. Yes. Because now you've got this, you know, before, think about like producing electricity, you had to have a big power plant and hundreds of millions of dollars. Now you have a few hundred bucks and you got a panel and you're good to go. You can start producing power. So that is going to fundamentally reshape for the better the energy industry. We are going to see 
more and more distributed generation. We're going to see more and more in homes and offices, and we're going to see more storage. I see in storage what happened in solar panels. They're going to come down in cost a lot. They already have. I mean, the battery cells themselves are fairly inexpensive now. It's all the rest of the systems. It's all going to come down. So now you've got, you know, solar that's affordable, storage that's affordable, and these things are going to start popping up everywhere. And then you've got electric cars, which are massive batteries, basically, and they can store a lot of power. And they can feed power when needed. So now if you fast forward, you know, you've got solar batteries and electric cars. And pretty much now people are in the energy business. You know, there's this term prosumer, right? And you can then sell electricity, buy electricity, et cetera. Okay, that's going to happen. But it's not going to happen overnight. You know, what I'm talking about, honestly speaking, is a decade out. But what I think we are going to start seeing, what we are starting to see, is more and more points of energy production all throughout the grid. And, you know, utilities generally see that as a threat, but it is a massive opportunity because now all of a sudden you think about resiliency and grid resiliency. If you can now focus the grid and upgrade the grid to handle all these loads, you're going to have a much better electric grid ultimately. So I don't think the electric grid is going away. I think you need the electric grid. And I think it's a huge enabler for the energy revolution. You know, I don't envision like everyone's just off grid and you have to have like, hey, you have to have massive battery packs everywhere, but also, you know, then you're not really resilient, but but you got to design the grid differently. And I think it will start to happen. I think the utilities are very close to the edge of starting to see that, A, they have no choice. This is happening with or without them. What's happening is solar power and batteries going in everywhere. Mm -hmm. What is their value add going to be? Their value add is going to be the grid. So that's what they're going to need to invest in. And actually, it's interesting, right? NextEra, who I would say of all the utilities and all the regulated utilities embraced renewables the most, is now the most valuable energy company. So that, to me, is an indicator of the company that embraced renewables the most. Utilitarian is now the most valuable energy company in America. That tells you a lot right there. And I think that eventually, at the end of the day, one thing about the American economic system is it's very shareholder driven for better and for worse. Yes, right? that's true. Yes. Um, and Great many point. times for worse, many times for better. I think in this case, for the better, that's going to have an impact on all these other utilities that are saying, okay, we better be more like them or we're going to get left behind. That's a great example and what Nexter is doing. And it's just amazing to kind of see how things have changed, you know, with the valuation, meaning the stock market value. Obviously, this podcast is about solar and entrepreneurship. You've been a solar entrepreneur for a very long time. Can you talk about like your journey and suggestions that you have for people in entrepreneurship or potentially want to get into entrepreneurship? I think misery loves company. So I invite everyone to entrepreneur. The thing about entrepreneurship that I found is the highs are high and the lows are low. It comes with the territory. But it is, you know, there's a sense of independence and creativity that you get that's very addictive. You know, my focus right now is less about entrepreneuring myself. I mean, we are continuing to entrepreneur in a way and innovate at Solaria, but I'm also spending a little bit more time right now to help other entrepreneurs, you know, especially this journey of like raw startup or zero to 100 million in revenue. I've Mm -hmm. done that now a few times. So I want to also give back and help other entrepreneurs. But yeah, I think that, you know, there's still a lot of room in solar to innovate an entrepreneur. That's one of the things I like about it, because it's not just in the hands of a few big utilities or a few big energy companies, right? There's a lot of different areas to continue to innovate, whether it's 
I mean, we're on the panel side and there's systems, there's balance of systems, there's install, financing, a lot of different avenues to innovate. I think one area that's ripe is in the commercial sector. You know, I feel like commercial has been kind of this no man's land, and yeah. but it makes so much sense. And I think especially with storage now for things like demand charge reduction and so many Definitely. opportunities there. So I think there's a lot of opportunities to do that. And the thing that I would say is in terms of doing a business in solar, two things I think entrepreneurs should keep in mind. One is that China and Korea, a lot of these countries, they are very focused on solar, much more actually than the U.S. is and, and in supporting companies. So it's important, and we learned this, to have business models and businesses that can compete against those companies that generally are larger, have more funding and ability to withstand losses for a period of time. So mentioned like how we were able to do that in trackers and in residential. Sure. So it's very important that because if you see I'm going to do something and there's half a dozen big Asian manufacturers that are all doing it, it's going to be very tough. To compete, unless you got something different that they can't offer. That's the first thing. The second thing is, while there is now more and more investor dollars coming back into solar and renewables, investors are very cautious and they're sometimes hesitant because there's been so much money lost too. You know, back in 2006, there were billions of dollars of venture capital that flowed into solar and clean tech. And unfortunately, a lot of it, I mean, there were some big wins like Tesla, but a lot of it, they lost that money. And so they're shy about it and gun shy about it. And so it's important to have a business model and a business that can attract that funding and make sure that investors are going to get behind it. Yeah, definitely. That's pretty interesting perspective. Can you talk about like how you've been very successful like in fundraising and maybe some advice that you would have? I know you've successfully raised, you know, through angel investors and VCs. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and any suggestions you would have for an entrepreneur looking? I think one of the most important things is really the team and the passion of the team. You know, at the end of the day, investors are investing in the team. There's a lot of things that will change around them, the market, competition, and so on, but the team is really critical. So when I say, what do people look for? Is the CEO or founders or team that understands the business and the market and how to create unidentified opportunity in it? You know, it doesn't mean the team has to have 20 years of experience in this, but do they really understand the market and are they realistic with what they can do? And are they passionate? That's number one thing. And I've worked in the venture capital world too. And one thing that is a red flag for investors is when entrepreneurs underestimate the competition because that means that they are going to get potentially run over by the competition. So yes. it's very important to say, you know, hey, here's my competitors. They're formidable or they're really good at this, but here's what they're not good at and what I've identified in here's why I can win. And not speaking badly about them, but just that, hey, these are great companies, but really not underestimating the competition, I think is really key. And then the third is, you know, what I've found is in terms of creating business plans is be very realistic and pragmatic in the near term and dream big in the long term. Because everyone likes to see huge hockey stick growth number. Oh, investors love that. They may say they don't care. They love it. It's like cocaine for them. They love seeing that. <laughs> but they look at like, okay, is the team being realistic with the amount of funding they and, sure. and to get to that place where they achieve liftoff or not. Because at the end of the day, once you can make it through the valley of debt that a lot of startups go through and you've got a business and how it scales, hard to predict right now, but there are businesses that just take off and investors can get behind that, but be very realistic and pragmatic, especially for the next kind of 12 to 24 months. And then you can dream big after that. That's great perspective. What about, you know, founders valuing their companies too high, you know, and expecting yeah, that's a lot a, more equity? That's dangerous. 
a lot of CEOs and founders and entrepreneurs do get very focused on the valuation. You know, I mean, valuation is important, but it's actually more about like at the end of the day, how big is a pie going to be, right? Yes. And there's other terms that matter. I've seen, you know, things like uh, liquidation preferences. They can be a lot more important than valuation because what's the reality? The reality is that 90% of startups are going to face problems, right? And when those problems, you encounter those problems, that means there's down rounds, there's trouble spots, bridge financing. So the rights that invest have and preferences are, I would say, more important a lot of times in valuation. And then the other thing which you're bringing up is you can raise money at a really high valuation. All that can mean is that it's going to be really tough to raise the next round of funding, right? Because now you have to show that your value is greater than that, or you have a down round, in which case, you know, that's when a lot of negative terms come into play. So I think it's important, you know, if I look at our financing, you know, I've suffered through down rounds and crammed down. I've been through all of that. We had to restructure Soraya, but since we restructured it, each one is been successively increased valuation, but not crazy. You know, nothing that's crazy. It's kind of linear, actually. And that's really what you want to achieve. Suvi, this has been an amazing interview and I appreciate your time today. Like there's a lot of great perspective. If people wanted to learn more about you or Solaria, what's the best way to learn about the company or you specifically? People can check out www.solaria.com, S-O-L-A-R-I-A for the company. There's some information on me there as well. There are a few things on YouTube and all that I've done, some talks here and there. Some of them are a little bit outdated, but they're there. And if someone wants to you know, contact me or see how to work together, they can feel free to contact me, Suvi, S-U-V-I at solaria.com. This is an amazing interview. We'll also have all the information on the notes of the podcast. I listened to your videos as well on YouTube and they were pretty helpful and I learned a lot from it. So thank you, Suvi. I appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you, Benoit. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think can benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown.